The following program may contain content not suitable for all audiences. Welcome to Metagamers Anonymous, a program dedicated to tabletop role-playing games and mostly related material, a presentation of Prismatic Tsunami. My name is Eric. I'm Jason. I'm Rich. Hi. You gotta do better than that. I'm tired. That's fair. That's good. That's close enough. He's the kid. Uh, episode number 262, Staking Your Claim. Ooh, it's a palindrome. 262? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not, not a very complicated that goes. That, yeah. That's pretty much the gimme of palindromes, <laughs> really. Uh, yeah, 262. Technically, every single digit number is a palindrome, and 11 is the most annoying non-single digit palindrome. Well, technically, 2 is a prime number. Technically, we're moving right along. 2 is the only even prime number, yes. I meant it. This episode is all about maths. We're going to talk about <laughs> the oh, there goes impact. Our <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about the impact characters can have on a uh, setting, a game world, whether it's kind of a world-building thing or um, just character development that includes things like uh, putting themselves on the map somehow, creating strongholds or organizations, guilds, whatnot, things that create real movement between the characters and their environment and uh, aren't necessarily part and parcel of the construct of the game, you know, like the the campaign itself or the adventures or whatever. Because I think there's a real interest in a lot of people out there in in exploring characters amidst their own agency. And, you know, that if you have very sandboxy games, then you're going to have a lot of uh, room for players, for, for characters to explore that, for players to explore their characters' options. Even in less sandboxy games, if, if it's part of the uh, development of the character, something that they can do along the way, that doesn't get in the way much of their, their otherwise their plans, their goals, their, their aims, or, or supports them in some way. Like uh, when uh, Brick became a king, you know, it was kind of part of the story. It didn't have to be Brick. It didn't have to be player character. We were going to be replacing the king. We knew it was going to happen. Uh, this was in the Zeitgeist campaign that we ran. And uh, because we did that, Jason's role, Jason's character's role in the party and in the story changed dramatically and became important Right from that point forward. You were in a position to make decisions about the way things, not just the way your character behaved, but the kinds of actions that were taken by, to some degree, the other player characters who bought into that, or the uh, NPCs around them, or in, you know, in other environmental factors... You could dictate their society. Policy. Yeah. The nation as a whole. I went from being the guy that was asleep on the couch during the planning sessions to the guy in the center of the planning session. <laughs> to asleep on the couch. Just <laughs> wanted to point that out. You brought the couch to the meeting. I did bring the couch to the meeting. Or made the meeting come to the couch, as the case may be. That's more specific. Yeah. It's it, good to be the king. Uh, sometimes. I, I think it was frustrating. The sometimes. plans will be in my chamber next to my couch. And, and, I mean, with that in mind, because it wasn't a goal that you had no. for Brick moving into it, obviously. It was one of these things, like, we get to this point in the story, and this change occurs. And change management for a player characters means taking advantage of opportunities to insert yourself into the story in a new and interesting way. Right. It was a little thrust on you by your game master. Just a little. And by the other player characters. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as if you had no choice. No, you did come to me first and say, I'm thinking about doing this thing. Would you be okay with it? Which is important, I think, as a game master, when you're talking about things that change the agency of the, the character quite a bit, the player quite a bit. 
And, and it mattered because you may have not wanted the responsibility for that. And we had to contextualize it too. You know, there has to be some definitions there. Does that mean that y- you can't put a player in a position where, uh, okay, so you're going to move in a position of authority. So now everything's going to hinge on you and you're in a vacuum go. You know, it, it doesn't right. it doesn't work. It doesn't create momentum. There's still story to deal with. And you had to be able to deal with that and because you're working in a collaborative environment, it's a group, it's a party of heroes, you also have to take into account how that interaction affects things. So you needed to be able to rely on your compatriots to be part of that pattern moving forward, part of that paradigm. You know, not only do we have to have buy-in, I did the same thing when we moved um, Jonica's character that earlier in the campaign into a more central uh, leadership role of Flocks. Right. We promoted her because it felt organic at the time, but there was that discussion amongst the people at the table first. How would you guys feel if we do this with Jonica's character? Because I wanted to make it feel organic in the game, but you definitely have to have buy-in from the players. And sometimes you don't have that dynamic at the table. Sometimes you don't have players that want to put themselves in a position where they have to... Yeah, exactly. Where they have to pay mind to what you had to say. I mean, Brick was king at this point. He had the power to make or break the party's goals by virtue of his level of cooperation with those goals. And that meant that if if there are there were moments, it happened with Flocks, a couple of notable moments, which were great for drama because we had that kind of buy-in. And it happened with Brick, where people would want to do a thing and the person in charge says, No, we're not going to do it that way. Yeah, you know, and again, it's not it, it's part of that's because it isn't in a vacuum. It's something that you, their their decision, like if you're the if you're the guy over here playing this other you're like Zed, if you're playing Zed and Zed wants to do this thing that is going to mess up other plans or compromise the intentions that, that was King the goal has. of my character. Right. I'm just using it. I mean, to be fair, I voted for a chipmunk for King. I mean, I'm happy you got it and everything like that, but that wasn't who my first choice was. Aren't you glad it wasn't up to him? Wait, you got elected King? (sighs) He only took one vote, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) It was the outgoing, outgoing regent. The way it actually worked in that particular scenario was the King selected his successor. Ah. who was then awarded the opportunity to be confirmed by the the lords. That makes some kind of sense. So in the moment that the king was removed from the story rather violently, he had already made it clear that Brick was intended to be a success. And that put Brick in a position where, at least in the immediate moment, he could take charge and deal with the situation and make it clear that he intended to follow his, follow his king's wishes. But after that, the lords still had to confirm and verify and... And, and they could have gone a different way. It could have happened, yeah. Right. I mean, it wasn't necessarily likely to happen, and, obviously. But And to this day, nobody actually has figured out that the king's dying words were, in fact, anybody but Brick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have changed things if it had been closer attention. Huh? <sighs> Those typos. <laughs> I knew Brick left something out of that report. Well, and, and there's another good question, too. Was he the best person in the party for the job, ostensibly? I mean, it's a little hard in hindsight to determine where that f- fits. Well, it definitely would have been bad if it had been Z. I, I just would have taken out the academies of magic. Yeah, it might have been bad. <laughs> I mean, nothing bad. I mean, just stuff that needed to go. The, the character had some um, bitterness in him. Just a little bit. <laughs> I think... Honestly, of the player characters, he was the best choice. 
because he would be the most open to consensus. I think anybody else would have taken it a far more selfish, personalized direction. Highway or the highway kind of thing. Bobby even flocks. Yeah. By our, if not especially flocks. I was going to yeah. say maybe especially. Being flocks. raised to dukes is what made you viable as king. That's true. Because we That's represented the different areas of thoughts. And he also was at least moderately revered for his power. Yeah. He admired for his heroism, which he, was important. He to was the known king. for his strength and his ability to endure. So you that, are a hero, so sir. Super. But it does have a dynamic effect on the setting. Now, that was a game. That's an example of a campaign where it's kind of hard baked into the storyline. What happened with King Aiden was going to happen in all likelihood. I no mean, matter how hard I tried to save his life. In all likelihood. I'm not saying it's impossible that it could have gone another way. I would have had to have like 15 D20s. <laughs> But, it, it, and you know, again, really great die rolls can end up making huge differences that nobody anticipated. Really great strategies that are outside the box can, you know, predicate great things that a game master never predicted. You know what I'm saying? Were there any little brown boxes in the book that said, if your party manages to save King Aiden? I think so. Okay. I so think so. So it was but I'm not going to say for certain off the top of my head without looking it up because uh, – but there was a lot of that sort of stuff in the Zeitgeist book. And that does feel like something that – although it was important for the story that we wanted to tell at that point, it wasn't a vital component for that story moving forward. Ryan, if you're still listening, shoot us a letter and let us know. We don't want to go back in the books and look it up. I think I'll see him this week. Oh. He's, uh, last I talked to him, he's coming out to Gen Con, so we'll get a chance to hang out. That's cool. I like him. That's going to be my thing, too. By the time this posts, I'll be on the road, be heading to Gen Con. Uh, going to be there Wednesday night. So if you are uh, listening, please let me know if you want to If you want to meet up. I would love to catch up with, the, with some of the fans that are going to be there. I don't know what the crowd's going to be like this year at Gen Con because there's definitely uh, – <laughs> Definitely been an event or two in the past year or two that may have somewhat dented interest in hanging out in large crowds, understandably, much less traveling to a major event that has will itself have been compromised somewhat. Because not even the people that would not be want to hang out. There's also the fact that not a lot of the same events and vendors are going to be there that usually are because they're not coming out in the in the you know kind of the pandemic world. I have concerns, you know, not myself so much because I'm vaccinated, you know, and I'm not worried about bringing anything home per se, but you still got to be aware that I'm going to a hugely crowded event. They are taking a lot of precautions. Masks will be required, absolutely required. They're making that so clear that you uh the no the violations will not be you know if violations beating they know how to wear them <laughs> violations will not be tolerated and uh i don't know about i don't know about you people listening but i'd hate to be one of those people that paid 100 plus dollars for a gen con ticket traveled halfway across the country and then gets booted out because i refuse to wear my mask correctly or refused to pull right. it over your nose yeah and, you know not that i'm wanting to get into it i'm just saying i feel like they're taking steps to make sure that everybody understands yeah. and i think that's the part i like Everybody understands because I don't like wearing a mask all day. I uh, one of the the big impetus for me to getting vaccinated when things started to lighten up this summer was that I wouldn't have to necessarily with people that I felt I could trust have to wear a mask all the time because it's a little uncomfortable for me. I 
I don't breathe as well as some people. You know, I, I definitely would um, prefer not to deal with it. But I've got a room there at the hotel. I can go escape anytime I need to, hang out. Um, I'm going to have stuff I've got to work on anyway because I'm going to be trying to take some video while I'm there, uh, shoot some video, uh, do some audio interviews, and I'm going to have to try to distill some of that and try to do a little bit of editing and maybe some posting while I'm at the con because I think that would be fun. I'll at least do some live video feed stuff, whatever they'll let me get away with. I mean, I got a press pass, so I think I'll have some options, but I, I'm not sure what to expect. It's my first Gen Con, Eric's first Gen Con. Yeah. You know, I've been, been looking forward to this since the uh, mid eighties. You know, I just never have been able, never have really had the option, even though I'm not that far away now in Wichita, Kansas, it's not that far away, but, hmm. um, but I'm driving up to meet a friend on Tuesday evening. Uh, I'm going to crash at his place overnight up in the Kansas City area, and then we're making the drive the following day, uh, the bulk of the day, and we'll be rolling in Wednesday evening. Awesome. So it's an Indianapolis. Speaking of the mid-'80s. I've heard of them. Didn't you have a game going with a group the time I met you where the player characters had literally founded their own city? Yes. Uh, interesting example. So that was a campaign, and it was actually a Forgotten Realms campaign, but that was a campaign where the player characters had gotten to such high levels in the game that they wanted to carve out their own little corner of the world as a group, even though they were very diverse. Uh, and so, so you had very kind of um, diverse interests in their role in that city, but they created a, um, they, they found a geographical landmark that they liked that was a little isolated and they could stake a claim on and they created a, a community that focused, that stretched between the, there was like two wizards, of a fighter and a cleric who are the foundation of this. And between the temple and the, uh, you know, the the one wizard who was just interested in his personal studies and having resources, but money was a big part of that. And another wizard who was interested in connecting with other parts of the world and other, you know, great peoples in the world. And and then the, the fighter who was just interested in um, mostly, I don't know what his interests were, but... <laughs> You know. Anyway, yeah, but it, it happened, and it was it was cool. It was great. We did uh, we did some stuff with. Did you get to play in that one a little bit? Um, I think you did tangentially. I don't. You played a character who had like two people in the same body or something. And they switched yeah. around. Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, <laughs> we don't really have a conversation about characters yeah. like that sometimes. That uh, that don't not only sounds weird, but totally appropriate for you. Yeah, it was. It was uh, brother and sister, as I recall, or sister and sister, or Ooh, something. Lord. Yeah. But I, I mostly remembered that because I think that was the first experience as a gamer that I ever had with the kind of thing you're talking about, you know, literally putting yourself on the map. And I was just awed by the sense of scale involved because my first introduction to it wasn't like, you know, a armed encampment or something. This place was a living, breathing city. You know, they had populated it somehow. There were cool yeah. things like the undead dragon elevator. That uh, I, I, I still that. remember. <laughs> Necros had installed it. Wouldn't that surprise me? And then just like a couple of months after I found out about it, it all collapsed in betrayal and backstabbing and treachery. And it was that kind of group. It was really, really cool. Yeah, it was neat. That was one of those weird situations where I rolled to the end of a campaign that pretty much folded in on itself. Oh. The characters' ambitions that were so incompatible had them back. A lot of intrigue. And uh, the the end of the campaign literally was them going that last step and doing things to each other that had final ramifications and seeing who kind of came out the victory. It wasn't planned that way. 
And the person who came out the most ahead ended up with the worst problem on their head. So (laughs) that'd be the weirdest callback, though, because in the future you could like revisit the ghost Mm -hmm. town of that husk that remains. I've never thought about going back there. I never thought I would go back there. I I have reused. I have used those um, PCs as kind of distant later versions of themselves in stories since then. Because it was a Realms game, but it was also, they were playing Travelers prior to that. So there was a lot I could do with them in other places. And two of the characters had achieved some form of quasi-immortality, as I recall. Or we've seen different variations of them, at least. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, that happens, though. I mean, gaming is a lot of nostalgia. Going back to those great stories and those great characters is one of the things that drives you. That was a really cool uh, example, though. I hadn't thought of that game in years because, to be fair, on top of all that, it wasn't necessarily a very mature game. Well, I mean, you know, this was in the mid-'80s we mentioned. Yeah, that, yeah right? well, late, early 90s, I think, by then, actually. But still, it was a while back. I, I really enjoy seeing what people would do if they have the opportunity to make those decisions, though. There's not a lot of rules out there for it. It's kind of one of the things. I picked up a book, uh, a PDF. I'll I'll put it in the show notes called like Strongholds and Followers, I think. Uh, Matt Colville wrote it. And he's a a lot of people know him from YouTube. He has a lot of his great um, uh, DM advice uh, channel. But he uh, he kind of he, he kind of highlighted the fact that back in the first edition era of D and D of AD and D, if you were a player back then, there was this kind of assumption built into original D and D AD and D that you would get up to around seventh to ninth level, what they called name level, mm-hmm. and then your character would build some kind of stronghold or something. It was this and attract followers, yeah, and attract followers, and that was the mechanic that actually mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, the stronghold was always mentioned, but then even when they described them, they always kind of made a particular to say the fightery type character would be the one with a stronghold quote unquote mm-hmm. you know I, th- I think that the assumption was there that that could mean other things like becoming a guild master if you're a rogue or, or a thief back then was what they called or a wizard's tower or, or what have you temples of course but uh, th- there was never any rules for it you know that wasn't really part of the game it wasn't important it was the it was, it the was presumption. window dressing yeah exactly but the followers were. They had this big, complicated, <laughs> high Gygaxian system of follower integration that, you know, was, wow, way too much trouble. But um, I loved it back then. We played with it a bit. You know, we did some stuff with it. I don't necessarily know that I needed a bunch of rules for it, but nowadays it would be more fun to see that sort of follow through in a uh, refined sense. You know, if you're going to build a, quote, stronghold, not only what does that mean for you, your character, what kind of possibilities, but also how. How do you get to that point, right? I mean, sometimes your player characters just find some dilapidated or abandoned place or they, they beat a bad guy and take the lair or whatever. And kind of work the most there. common variation on that theme. Might be, yeah. And it, but but at other times, you know, you're thinking, well, they might want to build this from scratch, you know, design it themselves and kind of build up what they want. And how would they do that? Right. And so I don't I don't know. I, even the new book well, I was looking at, I was looking at other stuff. So I haven't even looked at it to see if it had things like the cost. But I've seen that sort of stuff before in books. Like, And I know there are yeah. some players for whom that is one of the most fun parts of the game is, you know, getting to get in there and figure out all the mechanics of how you make this thing happen and how it works. and. Mm-hmm. I think there was even a third edition Stronghold Builders Guidebook. I actually, now that I think about that, I, I was quite fond yeah. of it, as I recall. Sims D anD D, a little bit. Yeah, it, you know, when but, does Dungeons and Dragons become Sim City? Right uh, but now. appealing <laughs> to exactly that variable, right? That 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 that's a compulsion we have to explore games that give us the power to design all kinds of little things like that. It's world building. 
it's the same uh, the same high that we get as game masters over developing a setting and all these little elements of it that our players interact with. Mm-hmm. You know, playing those sim games, or even nowadays, it's not even the games like the sim games. It's even in, uh, I mean, Nero sits around with Fallout 4 and builds villages, you know, mm-hmm. because she has the ability. Uh, other games that there's all these mods for that uh, allow them to do creative and interesting things with them. I liked, um, and, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of these examples out there, right? But I don't play a lot of these games, so I don't have a lot of a lot of personal experience. But I liked Dragon Age, for example. And in Dragon Age Inquisition, you, you're you not building the stronghold, per se, but you have all these customization options. And you build more customization options into play as you acquire more things in the, in the world to do it with, you know make deals with different people out there that have more things to offer or, or what different have you. factions or... Yeah, yeah. And so, like, every time you come back to your keep, it's got different decorations that you've kind of ordered or, or planned, and it's got new features and new areas that you didn't necessarily have before. It's, it's cool. It's interesting. I mean, the best thing about it to me in those games is that you don't have to engage with that to play the game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just another way to engage with the game world and the, and the rules. But the same could be said of games like D&D, fantasy role-playing game, where you don't have to engage with building a stronghold or any of that kind of stuff that also has, you would presume, responsibility, obligations, debts, the things that go with creating that presence in the world. Politics. Politics, intrigue. But that doesn't mean that you can't include it and let some people take advantage of it and other people not. I mean, you don't want to take up a whole bunch of playtime with it, but that's not necessary, obviously. You can do that stuff on the sly. You have created a presence in this town. You have a player character, a wizard, who decides that he wants to he wants to build a tower. So that player, in the off time between sessions, starts working on what it will take to do that. And you guys discuss it. You as a game master, well, if you're the player, obviously. But anyway, game master and player discuss that off game time and come up with a plan. And then the game master can try to construct ideas on how long that'll take and how that'll affect things in game if it gives them any options. The Stronghold and Followers guidebook I'm talking about actually has some cool stuff in it too that harkens back to a little bit of what the Birthright setting from the Birthright. I was so interested in that and I never really got to do anything. You didn't do much with it, yeah. Uh, which was this idea that um, kind of that divinely inspired idea of the king and the land are connected, sort of like they are in, we saw in the Zeitgeist game. You know, Brick had this, all this special power because of his connection to the land. Right. The same thing, that that comes from like this old construct of um, there's, a, if, you, if you are in a magical world, you know, if you are in a magic, a world where magic really exists and gods really exist and have all this power and everything, there's an idea you can explore there that the connection between the king and the land has a mystical component to it. Or even if it's just the king and his people, similar, like God, similar to like gods and their worshipers, the king and his people, the faith that the people put in him gives him something extra. There's different ways you could explore that. And the idea here was that they even create statistics for it, like maybe a special feat or something you get, or that, that allows you to get something for that. Or like, I think one of the examples I saw was like, maybe if a monk builds a monastery and they have word, they have people, monks that, that you know, work this monastery and, and help build it up and gather knowledge and stuff. 
your monk can get extra key points from time after time they've spent at that monastery that builds up things that, or maybe uh, powers or, or abilities that they have because, like, it's like having a, a stronghold power or something, you know. I, I haven't really delved into it much, but it's a cool-looking book. And the section on followers is also really really strong. It's got a lot of stuff in there and includes some, like, wartime stuff, some some battlefield rules, so I'm always curious to see what people do with that. Um, but Matt's got a lot of good ideas. I've watched his YouTube stuff, and I think that'll be fun to look into. So Be cool. But, you know, what do you think of that? I mean, have you ever had a character who had you had that ambition for, or would that be something you'd like to explore as a player? And you know, just coming from the very beginning, I I wanted to. It was a whole. It was that ninth level. That's what your character went name and level. Did. Yeah, name level. And uh, so there, that was a kind of a goal baked in, and it always seemed interesting to me. And it never ended up panning out. And Again, it wasn't a big part of it. So even if you've got characters that level, since it didn't really matter, quote unquote, you know, to the gameplay. But, but there just were an option. a number of games I've been in where we've put together a guild hall and we worked out of the guild hall and we had business coming to us from the guild hall. Like a that group. We went out of. Mm-hmm. Like an adventurer's guild kind of we thing. We created or... that type of thing where, you know, we had people working in our guild hall doing our guild hall stuff and we went on the most interesting of the jobs that came along. That's another thing, too, when you see adventuring parties kind of organize. And I, I've seen that in a number of campaigns. Um, we had a group called the Warriors of the Crimson Moon. That, Ooh, I remember that. Yeah, that, that you guys put together. And they it was mostly for notoriety. You know, it was kind of like their, their people had expectations attached to their reputations. So whenever they went anywhere that that would matter, I could work it into the role playing with the NPCs of a given area or anything like that. That recognition could matter. But it was all about how you leverage it, right? So if you're in the game, especially a game where you have a more sandboxy approach where the players get have a lot of agency about what their characters get involved in, that a game where they build some sort of guild or group or mercenary company or something that allows them to kind of pursue their goals or take jobs as they want to, then it can make a big difference. It's a really great way of putting yourself on the map. It kind of transitions from, you know, in your straight railroad story, the only impact the characters ever have on the world is what the story allows them to. But at this point, the players themselves get to start deciding what kind of impact they're going to have on the world, how they're going to change the status quo in large or small ways. And I feel like uh, at that point, a lot of players get the chance to get a lot more invested in the world and it's it's uh, the way it works because now they can actually change that to some degree. And I don't know, that that's kind of, it's kind of alluring. Now, I've also have now been inspired. It's fomenting in my head right now as we <laughs> speak because you said something about, you know, lineage. And I'm like now want to have a little campaign setting where you have like a ruler of a kingdom had passed on and passed down the the rulership to one of their, you know, say five children. Mm -hmm. All the PCs are the children of those five children. And so one of those people is king. Now something's happening in this kingdom and the PCs have to both work together to do that, but then they also, from their own different lines of this thing, are interested in doing what they can to make sure that their part of the family has resources. And There's a lot you can play with in that, and I do know that some players will appreciate that more than others. It would require a it would require having the same level of buy-in. Yeah. across because if you have one person doing one thing and other people doing other things, somebody along the line is not going to have a good time. 
And I mean, I, and I can see exploring it without necessarily wanting to be deeply involved in like um, administration or intrigue or you know any of the things that some of the players well, would obviously appeal to them. You would yeah. you would each have your own uh, household staff to do some, certain amounts right. of administration. All you need to do is sign off on. But things. as whereas one player could very much be involved in. Okay, I get up in the morning. I start look. I start checking on what's you know what projects I have. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do this thing. I've got this thing going. I want to check with my resource manager of this and do this other thing as part of their role playing. You have a, you have other players that are sitting there going, okay, well, I'm not really involved in any of that. My character may not even really be involved in any of that. I am the wastrel son who ignores all those obligations and just wants to eat and drink and fuck my way to happiness. Right. But in the the idea that the campaign would be, you know, short-level campaign, long-level campaign, either way, would be that these characters maybe play these different types of characters who are interested in these other things, but then you have these outside forces that are threatening the kingdom. Right, the challenge. And if they don't come together and do something, there won't be a kingdom for any of them to worry about managing. Particularly in a game, a scenario where the, the player characters evolve with such different skill sets. So they have like, uh, you, you know, you have in D&D, you often have party mechanics that kind of break that down along very rigid lines. Right. You know, this person's good at this, this person's good at this. I would recommend that the scenario you're talking about doesn't have to be a D&D game, obviously. There's no, a lot oh of gosh, no, you could do that both different world. genres and different systems. You could explore some of the concepts with because it's just a setting thing at that point. It's back, It's backdrop. But how you play it out could vary a lot. And so if you have characters that you develop characters with very different sort of I you know abilities very different sort of foci that can be employed to make a uh, kind of sympathetic um, not sympathetic what's the right word synchronistic right. S- sort of gaming experience that could be a lot of fun synergy yeah synergy's good but yeah that's I mean you know you've got that my my particular character there's a sister of the current king our family line has always been devoted to the church. I've been raised in the church. That's why I have some clerical abilities. Right. And that's where we end up having to do things, which comes in really handy when the things attacking at the gates are throwing undead things at us. True, particularly if that's uh, literally the case, like throwing them over the walls or, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> thinking outside the box. It happens. It happens. It, disease is not just for cows. You can throw anything over the wall. Well, the nice thing about it is when you throw undead creatures over the wall, you don't have to worry about whether or not they survive the trip. That's true. They're already that, dead. That is true. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if you throw a dead cow over the wall and just get people sick, that's less likely to come back out of the walls and attack you later. It does require a little more patience, though. I think zombie wear cows would be. No, not zombie wear cows again. Yeah, I, yeah. That's just that's going old, and we're just getting tired of them. <laughs> Fuck those guys. No, that was the whole point. No, that was the, the wear sheep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> See what you did, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> There's a level of world building here that I think um, if you're if you're interested in characters had not you know those kinds of scenarios notwithstanding because I, I think it would be fun to sit there and brainstorm scenarios where you can explore that level of integration between the characters and the the world around them from a place of authority and autonomy and you know what have you 
place on the map, a city to run, whatever it is they have, kingdom. But uh, and, and then when we mentioned Birthright, that's a little bit of what Birthright was. Mm-hmm. Was yeah. this game set? Do you remember it? It's a game setting. Uh, it was for second edition. It was like very into the second edition era. But they even wrote some novels and stuff. But it, the whole idea behind it was that every character had this sort of domain is what the, is the term they used or domain domain you know uh where they 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 gained some kind of resources from that they garnered some kind of resource from that and what they controlled depended on what kind of character class they were what kind of mm-hmm. you know um what kind of role in society they had so your fighters were more your strength of arms and uh, your, you know, would have like regular keeps and fortresses and stuff like that. And your clerics, of course, had divine resources, which might include their worshippers and their followers, as well as you know, divine magic that's just kind of readily available to, for various forms. Uh, wizards would have the resources of their magic and uh, their studies and their research in the land, the wild magic I of the have land. No idea what the rogue is doing, but he disappears for hours at a time and never has a problem getting a hold of something we need. Yeah, and his resource tends to be gold. <laughs> lots and lots of that. Oh my gosh! The uh, now the noble rogue is taking me back to the uh, girl from uh, Bulletproof Monk. Okay, she's running around the underground, even though her father is a rich uh, Russian. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> she really doesn't need to be doing it, but she does it because it's fun. Kind of a fun character model there. So I I want to say though, if if you're a player and you would like to explore these concepts, you can always go to your game master even at the outset of the game and discuss it. Um, but especially at the outset of the game. Yeah. If you're, well, and there are two different sides of this you can end up on. If you're a game master who's interested in exploring this kind of thing in your games, it's only going to work if you have some number of players who also want to either experiment or experience that kind of play style. If you try to push it on a group that's not interested in it, no one's going to enjoy that, least of all you. The other side of that is if you're a player who really wants to do that, but you have a game master who doesn't have any interest in it, you're just kind of FOL. True. Just remember, if you want to ask your GM for anything special, it's always good to bring a small gift like um, a loose leaf tea. Or something interesting like that. Where could you get loose leaf tea to take to a DM as a bribe? I get all my loose leaf tea from shop. Are you done? <laughs> Are you finished? That was the I commercial break. Weird. I get all of my loose leaf tea out of a closet in the living room. That's because you live in my living room. <laughs> That's because you live at shop. <laughs> so, yes, uh, unfortunately, Kit's not on the website. I keep looking. I even yeah. looked in the discount. You know area. what? During the pandemic, a lot of people went to running their businesses out of their living room. So, I don't feel bad. I mean, it's, it's kind of a thing. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of tea there. So, and, and including some really delicious tea. Right? Okay, fuck. Like, <laughs> I got to put together some gift packs for people I'm going to be running into at Gen Con or, or going up there with. Do uh, do some, uh, it's not really, you know, I'm, I'm not. Pocket re- full of samples. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I'm representing, but I'm not really trying to accomplish anything. I'm not really even networking or anything. I'm just, you know, showcasing what we got to people I like to spend time with. I call it spreading joy, but, you know, before you started selling tea, I was paying like five times as much for similar quality stuff, so. You know, on the whole subject of putting yourself on the map, there's another flip side to that that we haven't really touched on. And as a player, I don't think I've ever encountered it. But what about the players who want to, instead of building cities or becoming rulers, build dungeons? (gasps) That's just weird. I don't know. I want to set up the dungeon. 
and I'm going to bring people here. And then when they get to the end of it, there's going to be a chest with a note on it just says "Peace on Earth, Goodwill to Men." I tend to think of those you have people to put it on the mountain. I, I tend to think of those people as dungeon masters <laughs> because <laughs> let me let me think this through. Because they design a dungeon full of monsters and traps for heroes to go through. But here's the thing. <laughs> I was going to call it the Hunger Games, but okay. As a game master, when have you ever built your own dungeon from scratch and done so with respect to the constraints, both financial and capability-wise, that the person in the world has when creating this dungeon? I honestly don't know that I've ever bothered with that particular wisdom, but, you know... And this is why most dungeons <laughs> that people end up in are completely flawed and unrealistic. Now, and what I would end up doing if you did that to me as a game master, I would take and I'm like, all right, set up that dungeon. How do you want it set up? And then I would go and I'd mess it up and I'd be like, oh, something weird has happened and there was a rumbling in the earth. There are people trapped in your dungeon and you have to go save them. Or this and is, you're going to find everything has been screwed against yeah. you. Or this is the map that you have built that you're wanting to dig out, and yet it turns out when you guys got down in this hallway, you found that there was an open cavern and tunnel system already here, which changed what you had in mind, and then suddenly I'm developing level two. <laughs> and now you have to go clear out the dungeon. Um, <laughs> yeah, now you got to go clear out your dungeon. <laughs> oh, good. Giant worms again. That's awesome. Hey, Vanessa, but, where's Vanessa? The, right. <laughs> the other element of this that I find interesting is, uh, and sorry, my brain just thingied. Um, <laughs> I heard players can occasionally them. break even the most well-crafted game by coming up with some wild-ass ingenious idea out of nowhere that the DM never considered. Those fuckers. They can do this in your favor if you let them, and that can make some really cool ass things in your world that you never intended to put there and never would have thought up on your own. Well, I I prefer to I prefer to mine most of my ideas from my players anyway. So. Well, and you're obviously well familiar with the dividends of doing that because you've yeah. been enjoying them for decades. It's like you get into the dragon's chamber. There's no dragon here. You do find an empty bottle. It looks like it was labeled giant growth. Good luck. Somewhere loose in your dungeon is a giant dragon. Well, unless you built your dungeon with extreme amounts of copious over space, it's probably not moving very much, and it's probably not going to be that hard to get around. You know what? I like big ceilings. I just, <laughs> if you can't put a seven-foot-tall Christmas tree in there and have a star on top, why are you even in the house? I do think it'd be fun <laughs> to explore a little bit, not not necessarily your making dungeons thing, because again, and, and I don't mean that that isn't interesting, you know, as, well, as you know, with player characters. But again, if you're going to do that sort of design, just be the DM and run the game. I mean, that's obviously one approach, yes, but <laughs> there are <laughs> reverse role playing games that I have. Uh, Right, where you play the monsters, doing the PCs coming and into your house all yeah, the time. Yeah, the heroes breaking it. <laughs> My and, God, uh, there I were love a Goblin Quest. Those. I was going to say, there were a couple of those that just had some really ingenious kind of mechanics to them that I got hugely into. And so it's not the first time I've considered, you know, how, how much fun would it be to run a game where the players are the bad guys, but instead of the bad guys with a plan, they're the bad guys defending their villainous lair or whatever, their dungeon. There's merit to that. 
it can be, you know, uh, a change of pace, or it can be its own really rewarding experience. But obviously, probably depending on how much not people put into it. A campaign, by and large, a, probably. I, mean, I I won't say I don't have ideas. <laughs> ideas are scary. I still like the idea of you're like have the players design something and then you mess it up so that it turns against them. Yeah, there's a lot of possibilities there. I I feel like if you're going to get so engaged in some part of the setting like that, and I realize that feels pretty micro when you're talking about a setting, but it still is relevant. It has the ability to create scenarios, to create story. It has the ability to wrap some part of the world around it, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, that some level of consideration needs to be made towards how it's going to affect the game experience for everybody overall, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so, like, if, for example, you're wanting to play the master villain doing the lair thing, you've got to have everybody on the same page. And probably would, or you wouldn't be running that game, obviously. Right. You know, things like that. But there's still... um, plenty of opportunity to explore in any major campaign uh, character development and growth that could include things like strongholds, followers, cities or towns that you found, you know, or save and become very involved with. That's, that's kind of classic to the, you know, the NBC heroes that came to this town, saved us from some horde and then settled here and decided to build a castle or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and did the same strongholdy thing. Or like we said, taking over evil lairs or taking over um, abandoned places that were, have be- became dangerous dungeons that now that you've cleared it, you know, even though we are like 20 miles from the nearest civilization, this is a great base of operations. <laughs> oh yeah. That castle. <laughs> yeah. They came here and they saved us from like one ghoul. They ended up killing half the town and they're like well, this is great we're gonna move in and they built that castle and they like treat us all like we're like um you know just like here to serve them which is really weird because our village was just fine before they came along and honestly we would have had that ghoul killed in like two more rounds but you know whatever they saved us um <laughs> yeah so um there has their castle, and yay, um, that's what's going on. And uh, if any evil mastermind would like to take out that castle, the village is more than willing to help you, and we have a small amount of treasure for you. Uh, another common I've seen is player <laughs> characters that uh, start a business. You know, mm-hmm. it's obvious that that can be that can be small potatoes, but it can also be something that has real possibility. Like an inn is a common one. Starting a tavern or an inn, which then becomes a potential focal point for other adventure and you know scenario because it's a social gathering place. I had a smithy with my my uh, warforged. Sure, yeah, yeah. You had a business, place of business, a shop that people came to and did trade. Uh, yep. One of the more, in some I of the tinkered. Yeah. One of the more amusing things I remember from the early uh, part of the campaign I was running for my wife and our child and some friends. They had saved the daughter of this noble elf. And uh, Julie's character went after they had had all of the, oh, thank you, here's your reward. And Mm -hmm. she was like, you know, you gave us this money. I don't really need it right now. But I was kind of thinking, how would you feel about investing in a startup merchant? (laughs) You know, get us the resources to get some wagons together. Because, you know, her character had the background where she knew the trade goods. And uh, so she ended up. And getting that started and like a year later, she was like, so how's my business with the merchant thing going? And I was like, I haven't actually remember you were doing that, but uh, let me crunch some numbers and I'll get back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> give, give me a couple hours. See, I would totally enjoy 
like actually having not only being in a caravan but having a caravan so i had to decide which town i wanted to go to mm-hmm. we'd have adventures along the way but we're still also trying to get our goods to town and trade them and go to the next town and trade and for goods there and, and still yeah. make a profit and and still fighting things as we cross the desert which is why adventurers are running a caravan because regular caravans tend to get eaten by the big purple worms yeah I remember there was a town in uh, the War of the Burning Sky campaign we ran that that was uh, kind of became a home base for the PCs. Not in the sense they were looking for adventure, but in the sense where they, it was a it was a, a event it was a campaign that had a lot of political stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And this was a place that was kind of separated from that, a lot of that, but it had a pretty accessible. You know, the nearest nations were easy to get to, things like that. The player characters kind of set up shop in this town, and uh, I know that Jonica's character Jasmine she purchased an inn because there were a lot of refugees coming into the area, and there were also a lot of refugees kind of leaving the area for different reasons. And uh, this guy was a guy who was willing to sell it to her. You know, there'd been enough disasters here that had followed the PCs to this town, and he was willing to sell it to her, and she bought it, and. It was a place she'd been staying, but that meant that her home was permanent there. She started uh, building up some of her hobbies. Uh, Jasmine was a wine connoisseur, and so she started building a wine cellar, and that was one of those things that we sometimes would touch on in play whenever she was in a town where she could purchase a fine wine or talking to somebody and see what they had. I didn't have to know a lot. She didn't have to know a lot. We just had to discuss that her character was doing it, things like that. Uh, How'd that town get wiped out? Oh, someone tried to sell jasmine vinegar as ancient wine. Um, that did not go well. <laughs> Jason's character in that campaign started a, a church that mm-hmm. was sort of a um, par, uh, like a Parthenon type of place. It had like a various uh, deity interests represented there that were all servicing this community yep. because it was a little torn. It was like there had been a massive hurricane and you know, there a lot of stuff going on. And so it put him in a very important, not if not leaderly, at least a very important position. Right. There. Right. Brother Sunshine was the ray of hope the world needed. <laughs> he tried. Tried really hard. Yeah, and it was fun because it wasn't important to the story uh, that they were engaging in, but it was the parts of the story they made their own. And it gave me the opportunity to use those as a game master to create new avenues for personal development and explore their relationships with each other and with the world and, you know, all that stuff. Maybe it gave me a chance to make another one of Jason's uh, love interests, a bad guy. Yeah, there was still... I used to do a lot of that. <laughs> the fun thing where Brother Sunshine ended up being one of my other characters' patron later on, and I didn't know that until a reveal, like, much after I got into playing the character. So he ended up being a callback to what Brother Sunshine had started with building. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's got a little bit of world integration there. Wish we'd gotten a chance to really kind of drive that one home. Right. Sad, sad story. All right, well, if you've got any uh, stories you want to share or any ideas you'd like to share and kind of explore this, uh, drop us a line, feedback at prismaticsynomy.com. That's feedback at prismaticsynomy.com. You can also uh, find us on our Discord server. Drop us a line there as well. We like to discuss whatever gaming topics come up, and that would be a good one. Once Ooh. again, uh, Tsunami Con is going to be coming up here in uh, just a matter of weeks at this point. So we're looking at October 22nd, 23rd, 24th. It's a virtual con again this year, hopefully our last one. And uh, we definitely would love to get you guys involved because you can game from anywhere. I mean, that's the beauty of a virtual con. You don't have to be somebody that could drive to Wichita for this one. So make it work. We are, we are taking game submissions now. So if there's anything you'd like to run, you can get a Game Master's Pass for just a couple bucks, which is what they charge for us to have a pass for you. You know, so the company's not even making any money on that. Just go ahead and 
schedule your games even before you buy the badge. Get them on the schedule just as you know as soon as you can. If, if even if you've got a game you know you can run or a concept you know you can flesh out, even if it isn't ready yet, put a blurb together and get it posted now. Because here in uh, probably if I have enough, right after I get back from Gen Con, I'm going to open early registration and let um, let players let participants attendees start selecting the uh, games they want to play. And it'll start early registration starts with our, our Sentinel uh, passes. So if you want to buy a Sentinel pass, that's a good reason to as well. It gives you a chance to kind of pick your games before a whole bunch of the masses, such as they are for virtual con, you know, right. um, get in board, get on board. And uh, that's an opportunity I don't think you want to miss. TsunamiCon.org is the place to find it. And uh, again, our, you know, our discord server is the place to go if you want to discuss it. Any, so all the links are in the show notes. Anybody else? Anybody got anything else to talk about? Nope. Are My games are already on the. Well, I appreciate you guys. I'm off to Gen Con, Woo-hoo. so I'm. Um, nobody here from home is going with me, so I know. Please we'll don't see bring you guys anything there. back for us. <laughs> Just is that you not? I'd, be, I'd rather have nothing. Yeah. 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 That's fair. <laughs> we'll discuss that. I'll take pictures of nothing and send them to you and show you the price tag in case you want to just, you know, Venmo me the money or something. <laughs> I was thinking about sending you a 20 to get a scoop get, of dice. Get some dice? Get, get a certain kind of dice? No, it's like I've, I've heard that Chessex has the massive scoop of bin of dice. Oh, they might, yeah. Just, and it's like crazy cheap. Just see if Chessex is going to be there this year. That's the other thing that's weird is that all the vendors are different this year. We don't have a lot of all the standard ones. Yes, some, but a lot of them have pulled out this year. So a lot of a lot of people, they don't normally have the opportunity to get booths at Gen Con because it always goes to the regular long-term people first. Right. Um, are getting have booths this year. So I'm going to get a chance to meet a lot of people. And other, but I guarantee you there'll be a fuck ton of options for buying cool dice. That's true. So I will definitely let you know, and you know we can uh, we get you hooked up with something. Fair enough. It's it's great great idea. I know you like your dice. I do. You like your dice. I like my dice. Your shiny math rocks. All right. Well, everybody have a fantastic week. Uh, if we don't see you at the con, we'll be back shortly afterwards. I'm going to try to post some stuff from the convention as well. Let's do some live stuff um, on Facebook and or Discord. Make sure you guys have a chance to catch up with that and uh, get ourselves geared up for the next event down the road, which will be Tsunami Con. So. Thank you for listening to episode number 200 and, what did I say, 62? It's palindrome? Yep, that's one. Yep, that's what I should have called it. It's a palindrome. Uh, yeah, my name is Eric. I'm Jason. I'm Rich. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Consistency yeah. from the kid. Yeah, you get what you ask for. Right? Uh, get what you pay for. No one's paying anything. Exactly. Oh, we pay for it every day, sir. We pay for it every day.